Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 68, and the context between colonials and black South Africans was on the rise by the end of the first decade of the 19th century. We heard last episode how the Fourth Frontier War of 1811-12 had been a short, sharp affair, and the anger bubbling away amongst Amakosa leadership about the brutal emptying of the Albany district, so recently called the Zootfeld. We need to close the chapter here for a while to return to the incredible happenings further northeast as Shaka began to impose himself along with Dingeswayo on the people of the region north of the Amatugela, that part of the country which goes by the name of Zululand. Before doing so, a quick word about that commando which had been created to force the straggling Amatkosa out of the Albany district and led by Lieutenant Colonel John Graham's fellow Cape Regiment officer Captain George Fraser. Cattle raiding was increasing sharply by the end of 1812, despite the Amatkosa being removed, or mostly removed, from the Albany district. But the drought, which really began to bite in 1813, had forced many back onto the green pastures. Governor Craddock in Cape Town had started down the road of ethnic cleansing, and he wasn't going to stop now. He believed that the British were, in his words, actuated by motives of honourable justice, and ordered another commander in order to prove these savages and unceasing robbers that His Majesty's government can no longer be trifled with. He believed in law and order, and said that the most summary measures of punishment and vindication should take place, which was going to lead to Andres Stockenstrom shooting children, although by mistake. Captain George took the young Boer with him as his deputy, and already the youngster was making a big name for himself. Their understanding of Craddock's order was that it should be carried out in the plainest and most unequivocal manner, which meant, in Stockenstrom's words, to kill, to make an example of, to strike terror into the enemy was a duty, a standing order, giving quarter or taking prisoners was never thought of by either party. Which is true. Amakose had stopped taking prisoners after the British ethnic cleansing campaign, and the colonists were now aware that something significant had shifted in their way of war. Previously, they had not killed white women and children, but after the terrible actions they had witnessed as Graham's army raided their lands, killing everything, the Amakosa were finally and implacably converted to a much more European way of fighting. The harsh landscape seemed to evince more brutality from both sides, a country thorny and unwelcome, prickly with succulents, stubby bush that tripped up the fleetest-footed horse, dark, moody ravines, rocky, unproductive mountains, almost surly with their looming geological sedimentary brows. The Amatkosa were elusive, and the Boers on the commando were reluctant to go on commando. It was too soon after the recent campaign. They needed time to farm and take a breath. And, as you know, some of the Boers were still in two minds about who really owned the Albany district. Many believed that Governor Craddock had called them out on commando simply to press-gang them into military action they were expendable in his English eyes. It was not a relationship of equals at all. They were merely a layer above the Khoikhoi and were doomed to be pressed into the British Navy and Army. At least, that was their perception. And of course we know that in the minds of the British establishment, they did not honour the Boers. Craddock and Graham had no respect for the Boers, and their legacy of disrespect was going to continue all the way until the bloody Boer War which only then gave the British cause to pause. But that is almost 100 years in the future. So, 
Andri Stockenström woke up one morning during the commando of 1813 to find his entire force of 500 Boers, a huge army for the time, was sitting near his tent on their haunches, their muskets on their knees, saying they were ready to fight. But they were not ready to fight the Amatkosa. They were waiting for the British. They believed Craddock had sent a Khoikhoi Cape regiment to force them to return to Cape Town, where they'd be embarked for impressment and sent hither from their beloved African lands. They told him later they were keeping watch every night in this manner, just in case the British pitched up. This goes to show you how popular narrative, the stories around the fire or the braai these days, are so powerful in our diverse African cultures. Here are the British relying on the Boers to do their dirty work cleansing the felt of the Amatkosa, and yet the Boers believed the British really wanted to cleanse the felt of the Trek Boers. This is not a small thing, this sentiment. It takes hold over mugs of coffee in the kitchen, where the Dutch muttered darkly about the English and their propensity to lie, cheat and deceive. The English dishonour how they appeared quite willing to gun down women, then march all the way back to the comfort of Cape Town, leaving the Trek Boers and their women and children to face the frontier's bitterness and danger. So this commando of 1813 was a cold affair, for more reasons than one. Much of it carried out in the freezing mountainous area around Graaf Reinet, and largely inconclusive. However, there was one incident for which it would become famous, seemingly a trifle considering the violence we've heard about for some episodes, but symbolic. As the commander descended through a ravine down towards the Albany thickets, spears were thrown at the men from the dense bush. Someone shouted, The black throws, and Stockenstrom fired into the trees. When his men entered the thicket, they found two young boys of around six shot dead. Much later, Stockenstrom would defend himself after he was accused of shooting the two in cold blood as revenge for his father Anders, who you know was stabbed in the back and killed right at the start of the Fourth Frontier War. But all who witnessed the shooting agreed it was a case of military reflex at a time of danger. However, the charge against him was going to become a political hot potato many decades hence. We'll have to wait for this, as with all things in history, we know your past can sometimes return uninvited to bite you. It was this past that was going to lead to something called Slachter's Neck, a seminal moment in the relationship between the English and the Dutch in South Africa, and one which we'll get to in a couple of episodes. While the Khoikhoi Amatkosa English and Boer were slugging it out in the Cape, the powerful centralized kingdoms were beginning to build a name for themselves further northeast. In the years between 1800 and 1810, there is a curious gap in the knowledge of what happened between the Tugela and Pongola River catchment areas. We do have a great deal of oral history for this period, but not much documentary evidence. There was little trade from Delagoa Bay, unlike the preceding centuries, as the Portuguese and Dutch empires floundered. There were very few journals. Zwides and Dwandwe began to expand, but we don't have much evidence of just how this was happening, nor even the extent. Every single Zulu historian of this period leaves this decade out. Most jump from 1790 to after 1810. John Wright, Julian Cobbing, Alan Smith, David Hedges, Caroline Hamilton and even Dan Wiley have all found it virtually impossible to build an accurate picture. So what has filled the gap is oral history linked to something that we know as the concept of progression. Think of it as a graph. You have the angle at the start and the angle at the end. So, historically speaking, 
you fill the gaps in the angle, you tie them together. It's not empirical, but it's better than nothing. That means, look at what happened in 1790, then what was going on after 1810, and fill the gaps with logic. A steady progression, if you like. But the oral history does not reveal a steady progression, more like a series of peaks and troughs. As the Amandwandwe, the Amamtetwa, and then the Amazulu rose, this period was a succession of sudden moments. Bear with me, if you please, because we can't skip what happens here, and there are clues. If you look at a map of northern KwaZulu-Natal, you'll see it's not very far from Delagoa Bay to the hilly regions of northern Zululand. From 1799 onwards, the Portuguese had managed to prevent anyone else from trading around this area, but their own trade had slumped. For example, in 1801, a single English ship called in at Delagoa Bay, while the British East India Company didn't send another ship there until 1815. The Portuguese had cramped their own trading by instituting extremely high tariffs on ivory and other goods. The local Tsonga people were sending people trading far into the interior at this point, including to the Sabi area and Messina, into the Ngani and Kwabe country south, but these were small by the standards of the 18th century. One of these trade routes did run all the way from the bay to Lataku in Tswana territory around modern-day Maikeng. Again, insignificant in volume compared with the first half of the 1700s. There is also very little evidence, other than oral storytelling, that Zwede launched any major attacks on anyone before 1810. It's believed that he was actually consolidating his power during this period because, to his north, the Lamini Swazi were establishing themselves among the hills along the Pongola River towards Delagoa Bay. The Lamini Swazi are also called the Ngwani, just by the way, depending on how you read the genealogies. Nfungunye was the chief of the Dlamini Swazi at this stage. The control of men we've heard about had begun here too, a local way of signaling status and reforming the way of acquiring wealth like women and cattle. The Amabuto were defending vigorously against local cattle raids and were also being sent to intervene in neighbors' political affairs. Furthermore, the control of men and marriage rituals evolved in order to forge marriage alliances further afield, as well as to control agricultural production. Dingeswayo, Shaka, and chieftains of the time were doing this. Zwides and Dwanwe were contending with the Gaza and Jere to the east, and the Nkomalo to the southeast, and the Lamini Swazi to the north of Pongola, and the Ngwani to the northwest. One of the first written records for this early period was Henry Francis Finn, a trader and hunter, who heard that Dingaswayo's main aim was to build and monopolize his trade route to Delagoa Bay. Unfortunately, we have only a single paragraph in his journals to back this up, where he stated that during the first year of Dingaswayo's chieftainship, the Amam Tetwa opened trade with Delagoa Bay by sending 100 oxen and a quantity of elephant tusks in exchange for beads and blankets. This trade was continued by Shaka later. The Portuguese, however, were never seen this far south themselves throughout the entire period of the empire, starting in the 1480s, so it was the local people who transferred these goods to them. Dingeswayo wasn't fiddling about. He set up a Karos manufacturing centre around the Black Mfolosi, where more than a hundred men were employed, and that was around 1810, or perhaps slightly later. So there was trade, but it wasn't a huge resource-sucking machine. Dingaswayo cemented his marriage connection with the Mkomalo branch of the Amandwandwe by offering his sister Nomatuli Kajobe to the Mkomalo chieftain Malosi Kamachuku. Zwide's branch of the Amandwandwe was out of reach at this stage. 
Tingiswayo also forged an alliance of sorts with Bungani's Klubi further west towards the Imzanyati, or Buffalo River, near today's city of Newcastle. This alliance was really a statement of their mutual opposition to the Amandwandwe. Once Tingiswayo had cemented these ties, he turned his attention east and south. He secured tighter tributary relations with the Umbonambi and the Dube along the coast close to where the town of Kwambonambi is today. Near the mouth of the Mfolozi, Nkoboka Kalanga of the Sukulu was then catapulted into chieftainship with the support of Dingiswayo. In turn, he had to allow the Amamtetwa domination over the lower Mfolozi area. Dingiswayo wasn't finished. Further south, near the Tugela and Kwabe country, he forced Madlakovu of the Ngadi to Konza or cede to his demands. Then the Tadi were next. Another southern chief called him Jezi was forced to give up his Izigodlu, which you know is his power over the warrior headrings. That meant Mjezi was no longer independent. And around this time, Matkingwani of the Tunu was also forced to Konza, surrendering both his Izigodlu and cattle. But that apparently wasn't a lasting arrangement. We'll return to Matringwani in later podcasts. By now, Dingizwayo, with an increasingly successful warrior called Shaka, pursued a simple policy. He'd assassinate or oust the incumbent chiefs, or make them Konza, then replace these leaders with his own appointees. To the west, he did this with Jama of the Tembu, and Jama's heir was Indina, a child, who was also forced to Konza. Kabachi Kadanda of the Tulu was assegaied and killed and a new dynasty installed for the Tolu under Mapoloba. The Tolu were a troublesome lot, as both Dingzwayo and then Shaka were to discover. The Tolu had to pay tribute periodically to Senzangakona's Amazulu, so too did the Butulezi. It was the latter that caused a great deal of tension through the decades. The Butulezi were to continue stressing local authorities much later through the English Zulu Wars, then into the 20th century history, and one of their namesakes, Mangosutu Butelezi, continues that political tradition legacy today. Some oral historians paint Dingizwayo as a kind of King Arthur, but if you've heard the tales, the chivalrous knight contention doesn't really fit, particularly amongst those clans he'd oppressed. The Amamtetwa became famous for stealing other people's cattle and goats and eating them as they marched through whatever territory they wanted. Then they'd waltz into people's huts, and just help themselves to the food and the milk gourds, to such an extent that they believed themselves masters of the land they passed through, said one informant to historian Dan Wiley. The Amamtetwa political power was drawing itself to itself, centralizing. Tingizwayo, as we know, was following others in the region by forging the Amabuto system, but he didn't form the girls into their own, but he did have the power to marry off girls and women by his command. What he was doing was holding his own against centralizing groups of the period around him. He was not empire-building in the strict sense. Neighbors, other than those I've mentioned, were left alone, and there is no evidence that he tried to incorporate people along his trade route past St. Lucia Lake. He left the Langeni alone, for example. To the south, Dingzwayo faced many challenges and never managed to subdue all the groups there. One is particularly interesting to me, because I lived in the middle of the Kwabe area, and these people did not fully konza to the Amamtetwa. They merely got along, and intermarriage took place, protected somewhat by the fact that the Kwabe had dynastic links to the Nyambozium Tetwa. During the 17th and 18th centuries, the Kwabe had been based between the Mflatuzi and Tugela rivers 
on the Ngoya Heights, southeast of the modern port of Richards Bay. They were experts at trading, particularly in ivory, metals, beads, and now and again, slaves. The latter has never been fully proven, but the oral history speaks of people being taken to the Portuguese at Delagoa Bay in dribs and drabs, nothing like the West African horror stories we hear about. That Kwabe, however, were living on borrowed time. They were based in a hugely important geographical area south of the Amam Tetwa, and in the early 1800s, a major problem developed between the two sons of Kondro, the Kwabe Nkosi. Kondro named Nomo as his heir, and Dingeswayo seemed to agree with this choice, but the Kwabe itself, the group of councillors, did not. They took exception to the Amam Tetwa meddling in their affairs, and they supported another man called Pakatwayo instead. This entire dispute apparently took place over a famous ritual. Normal went off to Dingeswayo to be sworn in, so to speak, along with his younger brother Goduka Kamboli. Following him on the trail was Pakatwayo with his own delegation, and he wanted Dingeswayo to mediate about who was going to be heir to Kondlo. Other sons of Kondlo joined Pakatwayo as they traipsed along the beautiful hillsides that cover this part of northern KwaZulu Natal. The story gets quite biblical. Dingeswayo quizzed the brothers, then slaughtered a steer, prepared medicines, and burnt them in the traditional way, a burnt offering. Finally, Dingeswayo squeezed the steer's intestinal juices over the burnt offerings and said, Show me the son of Kondlo that you have come to install as chief. The sons shuffled up, dipped their fingers in the medicines, and sucked on them. But a scuffle broke out between the two brothers called Godide and Nakile. The latter was knocked over, and it appears his face was rubbed into the ground, which is a fate that has befallen many a weaker male sibling through the ages. Dingeswayo then shouted, I see how it stands now. So the entire process was repeated, and this time, as the other brothers appeared to falter, Pakatwayo stepped forward and symbolically scoffed the medicine. Some of the oral history now becomes muddled. That Kwabi contingents headed back to Odwini, which was Kondlo's kraal on the Imflatuzi. They took the dispute with them. Normo was then chased away and went back to Dingzwayo, who protected him against assassins sent by the Kwabe Ibuto, the regiment called the Izingondo. Just to add a smidgen more chaos, Kondlo then upped and died at that very moment, conforming to the Zulu saying that a chief does not live when there is a dispute. Pakatwaya was duly installed as Kwabe Nkosi, which upset Dingeswayo, who then sent his own Ubuto to revenge his protege, Nomo. We believe that Shaka was involved in this campaign, or campaigns, as there appear to have been a few that tried to force the Kwabe to Konsa. It wasn't easy. It's also believed that Shaka and Nomo forged a personal bond at this time, and he'd pitch up at Shaka's accession as king much later at Lobamba. These Apati Kwabe were going to fight off Dingeswayo for some time. At one point, he managed to capture Pakatwayo's entire household, women, children, cattle, the lot. He performed an Amam Tetwa war dance to impress them, and then he sent them home. Shaka, who was watching this, believed that Dingeswayo was feeble-minded and that the Kwabe spirit of resistance should be crushed their women and children, cattle, seized forever. We'll hear later in the series what happened to them because of Shaka's brutality.
Next episode, we'll go hunting with Shaka in the period after 1810. I'll relate some of the oral histories about this time, which are chilling in places, wholehearted in others. While the cult of Shaka's Amazulu permeates our present consciousness, we must try and imagine how at this point he was just another Amabuto warrior, and by all accounts, a bully, and some say, a blatant rapist. There's much gnashing of teeth about these stories, but we must dig down in this para-biblical tale of blood, sex, iron, and power. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at deslatham. Until next, salagatli. Thank you.